Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 8 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 8 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me, and find me, and ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive." Again, we are learning to see God through the trauma and the tragedy that we endure in life. Mm -hmm. What we are doing in this is we are making God tangible to us. Uh, so often, even as you trust the Lord, you've grown up in church, you've been around church, you've been around the Bible. Too often, in our minds, God is just a concept, a, an invisible force, one that is supposed to help us, but sometimes it doesn't seem like he comes to the help. And sometimes it doesn't seem like he's active in our lives at all. God seems distant. We don't see him. The purpose of this study is to be able to see him. That's what happened to Job. Job 42.5, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job was a faithful man. He knew God. He trusted the Lord. He was a, 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 good, a great man, a spiritual giant in his day. But he said that during that time when he was prosperous, when life was going good, he had heard of God. He knew God, but he had never seen God. Then God allows everything to be taken away from Job. And Job goes through suffering that we don't even want to imagine. And when Job comes out on the other side of that, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I've listened to the preachers. I've read the books. I've read the Bible. He goes, but now my eye has seen you. I have seen you with my eyes, with my own eyes. You are tangible. I know you, Lord. I know you more than I ever have. Mm -hmm. Job's experience made God tangible, and it brought him closer to God, and it brought him further into God's presence, which is why God allows everything to happen in our lives. Mm -hmm. It is to bring us further into his presence. Yes. Now, in Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the more famous uh, verses of the Bible, especially when we're trying to comfort somebody who is going through a difficult time. The Lord says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, if you listen to the prosperity preachers, and I'm going to call them out because prosperity preachers destroy the faith of many, because they make promises that God did not make. And when those promises don't come true, then the conclusion that the individual comes to is that God must not exist. This must be a fairy tale. These people are making a fortune off of lying to people. Why do atheists get so violently angry toward Christians? Because they think we're profiting off of them. 
One of many reasons. There's also a spiritual conviction aspect to that as well. Joel Osteen, during Hurricane Harvey, Tropical Storm Harvey by the time it reached Houston, floods downtown Houston, he announces that Lakewood Church will close and they won't be having services and, and you know, just don't risk it coming in. He draws criticism because they should have opened that church building up as a home, as a uh, evacuation shelter. Now, why did Joel Osteen gather so much criticism in some of the other churches in Houston, some of which did and some of which did not open their facilities up, not draw the criticism? Because if you want to talk about the poster child for the prosperity movement, that's it. In the prosperity gospel, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, God loves you and he wants to give you good things. He wants, to, he wants you to live in a land flowing with milk and honey. He wants you to live in a financial promised land. Paula White had on her uh, website that you should donate to her ministry that 2019 is the year that you take your financial promised land. So go in and take the land and send me $20. <laughs> a financial promised land. God wants you to be happy. Uh, it's all oriented toward our definition of prosperity. And that prosperity is in our world today. When we think of prosperity, we think of nice houses, nice cars, financial stability, financial well-being, a successful career. Everybody knows how good we are at our jobs. That's what we think of when we think of prosperity. It's stuff that's oriented toward this world. And when somebody is preaching you to you the prosperity of this world, that's how you know he's a false teacher. That's how you know he's a prosperity preacher. That's how you know he is selling you a book and not giving you the gospel. That's it. How to, how to prosper in this world. If that's the subject of the book, this man's buying a Lamborghini. He's not dedicating himself to the cause of Christ. Maybe I'm cutting a little too deep with my words this morning. I should be nicer. I should, anyway, we'll move on. The actual meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11 is much deeper. Because if God has thoughts of peace toward us and not end, and not evil, the end comes later. If God has thoughts of peace toward us and not evil, then why does evil keep happening? Why do bad things keep happening? We finally got through this round of treatment. This disease should be gone. I'm so glad. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'm about to be able to be healthy. And then the doctor comes back and says, oh, we just got your labs back. And you're right back in the tunnel. If God has thoughts of peace toward us, why does that keep happening? Why? Because the actual meaning of Jeremiah 29:11 is more beautiful than anything that a prosperity preacher can give us. The first premise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is that God loves us. He has thoughts of peace toward us and not evil. He wants to do good for us and not bad to us. And doing good is what's good in the long run, not what's good right now. Now, if you've ever raised a child, you know this. You know that when you're raising a child and you want to do good for that child, you have to do good for that child for the long run. Which means sometimes the short-term action is not very pleasant. I like buying my kids Happy Meals. Well, not so much anymore. They don't like Happy Meals anymore. But when they did like Happy Meals, nothing gave me more joy than to take my kids down to the McDonald's and buy them a Happy Meal. 
But you can't do that all the time, can you? And if they've been particularly disobedient that day, you can't reward that with a Happy Meal. You reward disobedience with a Happy Meal, you're going to have a child that by the time he's 14 years old, you cannot control him. So sometimes we had to withhold blessings from our children. It was not pleasant. I did not enjoy it. I take no pleasure in disciplining my children and telling my child he has to stay in his bedroom today and administering a spanking and canceling a family trip to the movies because of something they did. I take no pleasure in that. But, but you have to do that, yes. right? Yes. And so doing good means doing good for the long term. God wants to do good for us. He wants to do what's good for us in the long run, not necessarily the short run. And he wants to give you an expected end. You see, when God sees you, he doesn't see your messed up past. He doesn't see the broken individual that is today. When God sees you, he sees the person he wants you to be, the person he is transforming you to be. He sees the expected end. He sees the finished product. When you see your kids, hopefully you see the grown-ups that you hope that they grow up to become. Maybe they have grown up. And, and, and you see what you'd like their lives to be as they continue to grow, because we don't quit growing even when we hit 20 years old, right? And so you see the expected end. When Jessica and I came to um, Brownwood and Early, when it came to this church, we had an expected end. We had a vision for what we wanted this to look like after we got out of the mission stage and became more of a church, all right? There's an expected end. When we went to church on Sunday morning in the community room at the Brownwood Phase 2 apartment complex, and there were three other people there beside our family, we didn't see the church that was. Oh, there's only three people here. This is a failure. No, we saw the church that will be. Amen. And we're not there yet, but we're going. <laughs> we're on the way. And so the expected end, and so that's what God sees. He sees you. He sees the finished product. He sees the person that he intends on you being. And you'll get there mm -hmm. when you're about 90. Is yeah. anybody here more older than 90? Okay. You'll get there when you're about 90. And then he'll call you home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Talk about graduation day. He sees you for the person you'll become, but he also sees what it will take to transform you into that person. And that's who you're going to be for eternity. Now God spoke these words to Israel at the beginning of their captivity. Now there were those who were going through Israel that says, Hey, Israel, don't worry about it. You're God's chosen people. God can't let his chosen people be conquered. God will spare you from the captivity at the last day. At the last minute, he's going to use these armies to scare you back into submission. But then they're going to move on because God cannot allow his people to be taken captive. He cannot allow Jerusalem to fall. Don't worry. God will deliver you. There were prophets going through the countryside. They were preaching this. They were preaching. And they weren't even preaching repentance. They were just preaching, God loves you and will never allow you to be taken into captivity. And then they'd pass a collection plate. And people liked that message. So they put the money in the collection plate. But God said, I did not send them. You know, we see this going on today, don't we? We see people promising that God will materially bless his faithful. That God will not allow his people to suffer. That's the prosperity way of thinking. We have people that preach these messages. If you'll be faithful, God will bless. If you will just trust God, he'll make all the problems go away. 
if you will just donate $20 to my ministry, God will take care of those debts and those finances for you. I wish it worked. Let me tell you something. If, if sending Robert Tilton $1,000 would put a million dollars in my bank account, I'd write that check every time. But it doesn't work. So Tilton doesn't get any of my money. Because Tilton's a liar. Ooh, I just said that. Any Robert Tilton fans? Okay. Sometimes these prosperity preachers are self-deceived. I, I try to be graceful toward that. But some of them are just outright crooks. And Robert Tilton is an outright crook. Our suffering, their suffering, God in this passage told Israel that they would be taken into captivity, but that captivity would serve a purpose, and it would be limited, and that they would be brought back out of that captivity and back into his presence. It works the same with us. Our suffering is limited, but it's used by God for our good. And the day of our redemption and our restoration are coming. This passage teaches us that suffering is a part of the human life. Let's just get that down real quick. Suffering is a part of the human life. You're not suffering because you are, well, God uses your suffering to transform you. But you're not suffering because you're not faithful enough. And you're not suffering because you are faithful enough. All right? I know Christians whose fathers died in the prime of their childhood, you know, You've got this Christian teenager that's 12, 13, 14 years old. His father died. There are also lost people whose fathers died when they were 12, 13, 14 years old. There are Christians whose husbands die in a car crash. There are lost people whose husbands die in a car crash. There are Christians who get laid off when the plant that they were working at gets shut down and the jobs are sent to Mexico. There are non-Christians who lose their jobs when their plant shut down because those jobs got shipped to Mexico. Suffering is a part of the human life. The question is, what role is the suffering playing in your life? So that's what we're going to look at. Suffering is part of the human life, but suffering is controlled by God and serves a purpose and is temporary. And we'll look at that purpose. So let's learn to see God through the suffering, but let's also learn to see him in it. First of all, suffering is part of the human life. Promises that God blesses the faithful by delivering them from suffering, those promises were not made by God. Y'all ever heard that song, Held? Where it says, who told us we'd be rescued, what has changed, and why should we be saved from nightmares? What makes us special that we shouldn't go through the same things that our Christian forefathers went through? Or that our next door neighbor goes through? In verses 8 through 9, For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. God told the Israelites not to be deceived by the false prophets that promised deliverance. He did not send them. Likewise, those today who promise prosperity to the faithful or to the donors are false prophets. Do not be deceived. The mark of a false preacher is one who makes promises of prosperity. They build large followings by doing this. They sell books. They get TV specials. God says, I did not send them. If the man is on TV and Larry King is asking him, 
will those who don't know Jesus go to hell? And he doesn't want to answer the question. He's probably a false prophet. If Larry King is doing a better job of presenting the gospel than this false teacher that's his guest, that's probably a false teacher. Yes, I do have one in mind when I say that. I'm, I'm not calling any more names. I have to grow up now. God warned the Israelites not to be deceived by this. He also warned the Israelites not to be deceived by their own dreams, which they caused to be dreams. You see, dreams are not prophetic visions. And the people had caused themselves to dream these dreams. Don't be deceived by your own denials, your own rationalizations, and even fantasies and dreams that come to you in the middle of the night. Don't be deceived by things that run contrary to the scriptures. The Bible tells me to be faithful to my wife. If I have a dream that tells me that I should leave my wife and go start another ministry, I know that that runs contrary to Scripture. Mm -hmm. So that dream must not have been a, a, a vision from God, huh? Right. right? All right. So God is saying, don't be deceived by these things. Right. Throughout history, and this is one thing I want to point out. Throughout history, the faithful have both prospered and suffered. There have been those in, in the Bible that were faithful to God and they prospered. There have been those in the Bible that were faithful to God, and they suffered. But it was always with purpose. Yes. Abraham prospered, but he prospered with purpose. Yes. Job suffered, but he suffered with purpose. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, we see those who prospered. The Bible says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, Obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Now, if I'm a prosperity preacher, I'm going to say, let's stop reading right there. The Faith Hall of Fame, the most faithful, they subdued kingdoms. Y'all want to win the next election? Let's be faithful. Send in your money. You want your dead raised back to life again? Be faithful. Send in your money. You want, to be, you want the cancer to leave your body? Coming up here, I'll lay my hands on you. I'll throw you down on the floor. You'll be healed, and you can send me your money. You see, you see how this is going? If I were a prosperity preacher, that's how I'd interpret that passage. But let's look at this. In each of those cases... Subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. In each of these cases, there was a deeper purpose. They subdued kingdoms with the word of God. Who did that? Who subdued the kingdom? God subdued the kingdom. What was the purpose of subduing the kingdom? To spread his word. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They subdued the nation of Babylon. They subdued King Nebuchadnezzar. Stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel thrown in the lion's den. They didn't eat him that night. What was the purpose of that? When Daniel walked back out of that lion's den the following morning, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, says, Praise God! I tell you what, y'all praise God too. Everybody worship Daniel's God. That's the new law. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same thing. By the time we get to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's professing God as his savior. The king who conquered Israel. They wound up winning Babylon to the Lord. That's why they prospered. But some suffered. We continue reading Hebrews 11.35. And others, 
See, this is this. If I were a prosperity preacher, I wouldn't have read this part. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Pay attention to that. They they might obtain a better resurrection. It's not about this life. It's about the next life. If I have no spiritual rewards, but I have a 40-bedroom mansion in this life, what do I have? Good answer. Verse 36. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, if, we, if you've lost uh, track. Hebrews eleven thirty-six. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging, Jay Moore, other bonds of imprisonment. They were stoned. That's not a good thing. They were thrown off a cliff and heavy rocks thrown on them. They were sawn asunder. That's what happened to Isaiah. He was cut in half with a saw. They were tempted, slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. I wonder why they couldn't just speak victory over that. Being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, so they're faithful and God sees their faith and they have a good reputation with God, a good report with God through their faith. These all obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The sufferings experienced by those folks described in these verses happened to some of the most faithful people in the history of the world. Hebrews chapter 11 is the Faith Hall of Fame. In fact, some of this very stuff we're reading in Hebrews chapter 11 happened to Jeremiah, who wrote the words that we read in our opening text this morning. But there was purpose to it. That they might obtain a better resurrection in verse 35. That we may be the spiritual beneficiaries of their lives, suffering, and faithfulness. See, God allows suffering. He allows suffering so that we can have a better resurrection. Which, going back to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, that's the expected end that God sees. And to reach others. So we go back to Jeremiah chapter 29 and we read in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place. Israel would go into captivity, but God would still be in control. Suffering would happen, but God is still in control. Suffering happens, but God is in control. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Suffering is not strange. It's normal. Look back on the history of the world. Now stop, 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 stop. Don't do that. Think about your life today. What are your problems? What, what, what's your problems today? The, you know, I don't want to take the, I don't want to shame you, but that, that's not the point of this exercise. I just want to put everything in context. What's your problem today? All right, now let's back up a hundred years. What was their problems a hundred years? The average person you would talk to, if you ask them what their problems were a hundred years ago, what would their problems be a hundred years ago? Back it up about fifty years before that. What would their problems have been? Back it up about 100 years before that. What would their problems have been? Go back to Europe during the Middle Ages. What were their problems? Go back to the Bible times. What were their problems? I don't know about you. I ain't changing places with any of those people. 
Leland, I can deliver you your problems from your problems today, but the downside is you'll have to live in Texas in 1870. No, thank you. I know it's romantic to think about riding horses and cowboys and Indians and, and cattle drives. That was not glamorous, let me tell you. You know, when, when you go back to, when you go visit a cemetery and you, you come upon this plot where you have a husband and wife, the husband passed away in 1912, the wife passed away in 1920, and you see a bunch of little headstones next to them. Baby Girl Johnson, 1901. Baby Boy Johnson, 1902. Baby Girl Johnson, 1903. Turn of the 1900s, that was their problems. You look back on the history of the world. Now we go back to the history of the world. Suffering is what people did. The prosperity we have today, the conveniences we have today, this is a small blip. It is an anomaly in human history. And you get to live in it. Let's be thankful for that. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean that your problems I had you think about are not problems. They are, okay? I'll recognize that. God recognizes that. But don't think of it as something strange happened to you. That's life. But if you suffer with God, yes. you suffer with Christ, yes. you'll be glorified with him. Amen. So suffering does happen. Yes. Secondly, suffering is controlled by God and is temporary. We go to verse 10. I know y'all are like, man, he spent a lot of time on that first, ver on that first passage. This is going to be forever. No, hold on. The first part's the big part. Yeah. If you've ever seen me cut a pizza, I cut one big piece and a bunch of little ones. All right, we just ate the big piece. Now on to the little pieces. Suffering is controlled by God and is temporary and also serves a purpose. We look in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon. So let me tell you something. He's telling them they're about to go through this, through this time, but he also puts a date on it. Now, can you imagine if the next time something bad happens in your life, let's say you get laid off. Let's say you get laid off from work. And God says, by May the 1st, you're going to have a new job. You know what I'm doing? I'm looking forward to May the first, and I'm and I'm, I'm trying. And everything within me is, how do I make it to May first, right? Yeah. Well, God does that for the Israelites. He says in verse ten that after seventy years be accomplished, He puts a, a time stamp on it. He says you're going to get to go home at this point. When I was in preschool, you remember me telling you about how much I hated preschool? All right, I knew at four o'clock Granny was coming. When they finally taught me how to tell time. I, I would watch that clock until 4 o'clock. Hopefully she wasn't late. Okay, verse 10, Thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return into this place. First of all, suffering is temporary. The people would go into captivity, but God would end that captivity after 70 years and bring them home. If he's got the ability to put a time limit on it, that means he's in control of the suffering. It also means that the suffering is temporary. For a relatively short time. And that God would visit them. That word visit means to come to, to care for, to minister to. So God would care for them. God would perform his good word toward them. And what we learn from this is our suffering is temporary. The problems we're going through in life are temporary. First of all, half the stuff you're worried about today, you're not even going to be remembering a year from now. But second of all, that stuff that you do remember a year from now that you suffered through today, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be worried about it anymore. You see, this is all just a tunnel we're going through on the way to heaven. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking forward to heaven. 
And so our suffering at this present time is temporary. Verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. God's purpose was to give Israel the expected end of having the nation reunited in his, and in his presence. And his expected end for us is that we be transformed and in his presence. So the suffering is temporary, and it is serving that purpose Amen. of transformation. Mm-hmm. And that's God's ultimate goal. Amen. Third thing. The expected end, the purpose of the suffering. Why are we going through all this? Why am I talking about all this? Because we need to understand that God is working in our lives to transform us. Who we were yesterday is not who we are today. And who we are today is not who we're going to be tomorrow. You got a bad start in life, that doesn't mean you have to have a bad finish in life. Um, Here in a few weeks, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is going to deal with the issue of divorce. People have suffered through this. People have been affected by divorce, all right? And so we need to put all this into perspective because that divorce does not define who you are for the rest of your life. You are not somehow damaged goods because you had a divorce then. What we're learning about when we study divorce and we study marriage is that what God wants us to, what what God wants for us. And so we had the divorce in our past, but we're in a good marriage now. Then what you learn is to make the good marriage now a good godly marriage. That's what you learn. And God transforms you. You're not defined by that divorce back then. That, that doesn't make you damaged goods. God redeems you out of that stuff, you see. He gives you a new life, a new start, a new future. He transforms you. Sadly, in our prosperity preaching in modern-day Christianity, we've totally lost that. And so somebody goes through a divorce and they're damaged goods. And couldn't you have made it work and all this other kind of stuff and the person gets guilted out of the Lord's presence no we're talking about redemption here transformation we're new people God's ultimate goal that's what he wants to transform us in verse 12 then shall ye call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you when you go through all this you learn to turn to God you learn to trust God you learn to pray to God and when you pray to God guess what he hears you. Yes, he does. And not only does he hear you, but he hearkens unto you. Mm-hmm. See, y'all are all reading along in modern translation Bibles, with the exception of a few. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that word hearken. You lose the beauty of hearken. Yeah. <laughs> so Isaac is in his bedroom playing. And I say, hey, Isaac, come in here. Did Isaac hear me? Yeah, he heard me. Does he come into the living room? No, no why? Because he didn't hearken unto me. Mm-hmm. All right? But now let's flip the script. Isaac is out in the yard. Isaac climbs the trees. You know, he's a little spy up there. Yeah. I walk out in the front yard with JJ. I think I'm having a private conversation with JJ. All of a sudden, he jumps in. Cool! Plus, you weren't supposed to hear that. <laughs> I thought we were alone. Yeah. He heard me. <laughs> Well, let's suppose, let's suppose Isaac is in the tree in the front yard. And Isaac falls out of the tree and hurts himself. And he screams, Dad! Do I hear him? Yes. yes. Do I go running out there, freaked out because my son is screaming, I want to see what's going on? Yes. 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 What's that called? Hearkening. Hearken. And so when you pray to God, it's not just that he hears you. No. 
Sometimes Isaac calls out to me and I hear him, but I don't hearken to him. I'm like, they're being silly. But when I hearken to him, when he's crying because he fell out of the tree, this is just an example, this didn't happen. Right, right. Well, I hearken to him, I run out there to check on him, right? right? When you pray to God, he doesn't just hear you. Oh, there goes Brother Wayman praying to me again. No, he hearkens. He responds. And that's what God is building us to, that point to where we learn to turn to him in prayer. And when we do that, he hearkens unto us. Amen. And verse 14 is a very beautiful voice. See, in the modern translation, you lose that. You don't get the hearken. Maybe there, I don't know what the modern translation says, but hearken is such a beautiful word. Mm-hmm. You, you call out to him, he comes to you. Right. And verse 14, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations mm-hmm. and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. After 70 years in Babylon, the nation of Israel would turn to the Lord. They would call out to him. They would pray to him. And he would hear them. He would hearken unto them. And he would bring them out of Babylon and back into the homeland. And you know how he does that? By getting Babylon invaded. And by bringing in kings who have an inexplicable, an inexplicable respect and reverence for God's temple and his word. And you read all about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. You read a lot about that there. But what we're looking forward to is the day that God rescues us from this life. Um, there's a beautiful lyric by Rich Mullins. And it says, if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. If I sing, let it be for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. You know what it's like to miss home? Been on a military deployment and wish you could go back to Weatherford? Um you know, been working in another city and you wish you could go back to your hometown where everything makes sense, you long for your home, right? Yeah. And so I've had those moments. I've longed for my home too. Except my home is not in Jacksonville, Texas anymore. <laughs> yeah. Every time I go back there, I'm reminded of that. I go back there, it's a totally different town now. And my family is different and the, the church I came out of is different. I could, I could, Rocky Springs, our sponsoring church, if I go to Rocky Springs next week, 90% of the people won't know who I am. I'm a, we're a, a line item on their monthly budget. That's all they know about us. That's okay. That's, this is where we're supposed to be at this point of our yes. growth phase. But the people that were there when they sent us out are not the people that are there now. My home's not in Jacksonville, Texas anymore. So I want to go home. Where do I want to go home to? I want to go home to be my Lord. Yes, amen. I'm not planning on doing that anytime soon. Don't call the suicide watch on me. Mm-hmm. But that's where we're going. That's where you're going, if you know the Lord is your Savior. That's what we're to be looking forward to. And the joy that we will see in that kingdom will be joy unlike any possible joy that we will have in this world. And so as we study Jeremiah 29, 11, as we go through these, these verses, let's understand that God is transforming us. God is changing us. Amen. And you know it. You see it. You can identify it in your life. 
He is transforming you. He is changing you. He is bringing you forward. But the process is not fun. The process is not always pleasurable. But what these verses teach us is to continue to stay faithful to the Lord. To stay in his word. To continue to follow him. To follow him despite the ineptitude of the pastor sometimes. But to continue to follow him. To not let anybody get in your way of following him. And to trust in that transformative process. That transformational process. That we are going through a hard time today. But we know that we are a lump of coal that God is transforming into a diamond. And we trust that process. And as we learn to trust that process, we find it easier to be at peace in the midst of the storm. Yes.